0: remnants of the steam engine. From the tall chimneys in the post-industrial north to the idyllic North Yorkshire villages that still run steam heritage locomotives, to the museums of Britain's industrial past, all of which have some sort of steam engine. This is the one thing you can't get away from when you look at the north of England. America was built on an idea. France was built on a revolution Germany was rebuilt after a war, but the north of England was built on steam. The steam engine powered Britain from the 1710s to the beginning of the First World War. We spend much of our lives learning history and going over the same few events, yet the story of steam should surely be one of history's primary stories. It helped the Industrial Revolution by providing one crucial thing never seen before on a large scale, mechanised power. Power to move, transport and quicken up the world. What the steam engine underlined, first in England and then around Britain, Europe and the world, was the second humanitarian revolution. Not a revolution of politics or political order, but of humanity. Like the agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago, What the steam engine unleashed was like nothing we have seen before or since. The steam engine and other developments, many of which happened concurrently, meant that Britain was the first country which did not just use beasts of burden as extra labour, but could use mechanical power. We don't really know what started the industrial revolution. Some estimates say there have been 200 theories of what did begin the industrial revolution. These range from a very concept of Protestants being more harder working and less idle than Southern European Catholics or Confucius's China. Other theories highlight Britain's easy access to coal, meaning there's a clear and obvious reason to mechanise. Others highlight Britain's uniform political nature, with no internal tariffs, or perhaps its strong aristocracy, who were uninterested in the ordinary Englishman and could see how much money could be saved by mechanisation, and it pushed the landed gentry to invest in infrastructure and technology. Maybe it was the high labor costs of the working classes, meaning innovation was needed. More likely, and more boringly, it was probably all of these things, but we just don't know. This is one area of history the Great Man's thesis of history has provided very few explanations for. Most academics explain the Industrial Revolution not through the proliferation of great engineers and scientists, but through broad trends and forces. What is certain is that the invention of the steam engine played a huge part in this. Yet, what we understand as historical fact, especially something like the Industrial Revolution, with it being such an elusive and unexplainable event, means there has been much pseudo-intellectualism on the subject. Political explanations have been used to try and explain the reasons for this revolution in England. These range from Marxist explanations of general exploitation of labour inherent in capitalism, to Francis galton theories of racial superiority, in which he ranks the inherent genius of certain races. The Aboriginal Australian bottom, the Negro second from bottom, the Englishman however is not top, the Lowland Scot comes second top, and the Athenian Greek is supposed to be the best race. The eugenics movement is perhaps not the best way to explain the Industrial Revolution. I've listened to enough Jimi Hendrix and read enough about how the Greeks are unable to get an economy working to see the nonsense in these supposed eugenics movements. Less racist though perhaps no more accepted is the Churchillian notion of praising the working spirit of the English-speaking peoples as the key to the Industrial Revolution. Yet one thing most of the historiography suggests was that it was a British phenomenon, with the entire country chipping in. History is always written by the victors, we know this. Yet when people say this, I don't think the phrase is quite understood. It isn't just, for example, the West saying the Nazis were bad, because the Allies beat them, and subsequently wrote history. The large importance of the phrase is the internal struggle over how history is written. Look today at the fighting over how best to represent black history in the West. From completely ignoring history to arguing, as the 1619 New York Times project does, that black history is the driving force behind American history. Perhaps my favourite example is the English Civil War, supposedly won by the parliamentarians, you know, Oliver Cromwell and all that, but soon after the death of Cromwell and the monarchy returned. Ever since, England has been run by a constitutional monarchy. The revolt of parliament and the promotion of English republicanism by the ruling classes has never been a strong one since 1688. The demonstration that the monarchy and the aristocratic system won in Britain was so complete that the English Civil War is not really talked about and mentioned much. It is often highlighted that Cromwell was an evil man who was hell-bent on genocide and power. Something a fair evaluation of history would see was less black and white. This crucial point in Britain's history is hardly talked about now and certainly not central like the American War of Independence is in the United States. Even the name, the English Civil War, denotes a petty swabble. Historians like Christopher Hill state it should be called the English, or at least the British, Revolution. So what does this matter? Well, English history is written not by those who experienced it but those who rule. The Industrial Revolution was not an English thing. Britain was three distinct peoples the Industrial Revolution can be seen as the result of the interplay between the three great regions of the day, Scottish engineers and philosophers, Northern and Midlands miners, factory owners and risk takers, and the southern bankers, financiers and landowners who held political control. This interplay, unique only to Great Britain, had regions with strong specialisations and different peoples working in different complementary natures. Furthermore, The strong emphasis on bringing together this new nationist feudalism declined, allowing people more freedom, creating a more integrated Great Britain. So, by the 1760s, a Scot could be educated in London, working Birmingham and Cornwall, while having a workshop near one of the great Scottish universities. Today, very little due is given to Scotland, and sometimes even the North, in this industrial revolution. The Industrial Revolution was a northern English phenomenon. Britain's primary contribution to the world is still little celebrated and understood. Travel to the museums of London and you'll see the great Egyptian sculptures, Japanese arts, Greek artefacts and Mesopotamian art, but little of what actually got Britain the money to acquire those pieces of history. The Industrial Revolution is treated almost as if it happened by accident. And while the 200 or so theories play a strong role, the fact that the Scots could invent, which the Northern English could use and develop to aid commercial industry and use the riches to put money into the world's most advanced banking and financial system in London, was the result of this great financialisation. The South then used its newfound wealth to establish Britain as a central part of the world by expanding the global marketplace and expanding its political power. The steam engine was one of the most important elements in this relationship. Developed by a Scotsman and used in the North to help the process of industrialization. the wealth was then extracted by the South to maintain political order, property rights, rules of law, and the interests of the nation overseas. Despite the steam engine and other inventions like this clearly being so important, inventions of the historical concept have seen a little interest. Economist Abbott-Painton Usher has a theory of inventions in his 1929 book, The History of Mechanical Inventions, in which he lists a four-step sequence of how inventions are made. 1. Awareness of an unfulfilled need. 2. Recognition of something contradictory or absent. 3. An insight into a pattern. 4. A process of revision in which the insight is tested and refined. This is broad enough to apply to most inventions, but too broad to be of little use in understanding how inventions actually work. But, as we get a little deeper into the study of inventions, it's important to see a more conceptual theory of innovation, as we can start to see patterns into how inventions change our life. So we all know the Industrial Revolution started and began one of the biggest changes in human living in thousands of years. T.S. Ashton's summation of the Industrial Revolution was short and precise. Quote, In about 1760, a wave of gadgets swept over England. Close quotes. Yet this original wave in 1760 hadn't fully incorporated a generally useful steam engine. Just yet. By 1800, England's water mills were still providing three times as much power as its steam engine. Yet, the steam engine is the poster boy, of the Industrial Revolution. Why? All the roads of the Industrial Revolution were initiated by the steam engine. It is the central spoke of coal, iron and cotton. The steam engine wasn't the catalyst for the Industrial Revolution. It was the Industrial Revolution. You could argue therefore that the steam engine should be higher, but it's invention impossible without other inventions. It powered all the other inventions that would change the world. But it was these other things that powered the development of the steam engine. In and of itself, it's fairly useless. It needs mining to take place. For the need for steam to lift water out of the mines. It needs the need for coal to get to canals and ports quicker to develop the railway. So that's why I've left it a little further down than you might think. What the steam engine did show the power of mechanisation. We think of the industrial revolution as this event that happened all those years ago. Yet it wasn't really an industrial revolution. Sure, industry happened. But it wasn't really why it happened. Industry was the result, not the cause of the revolution. The other thing to think about is that humans always think they aren't really part of a history until after something is over. Sure, people go through events which sometimes become history, but the truest changes take a long time, and you don't quite realise its impact. People living in the coronavirus crisis have a real sense it might be historical, but it's a short, sharp event. The longer drawn-out changes will occur after that, and will be far more profound and people having to stay inside for a few months during the lockdowns. We don't tend to see that as history. To us, it's just living. The September 11th attacks were perhaps one of the few occasions in recent years where there has been a clear, yes, this is history moment. Yet the pre imposed 9 11 world is far harder to comprehend what changed and by how much. Smartphones, for example, we just use and we can see, day to day, how we do use them but we struggle to comprehend what billions and billions of people suddenly getting smartphones and internet access in the real world actually means for humanity. So I've thought the Industrial Revolution was poorly named. It should be called the Mechanical Revolution. The use of mechanics and mechanical objects as tools is something we are still living with today. Every day we use machines, so there's something we don't have to do, with new and more efficient machines ever changing and helping us more. The agricultural revolution was not begun, with somebody planting a seed and announcing, therefore, the agricultural revolution had begun. It was a small and gradual process, over a period of centuries, with no end game and a profound change in humanity, with perhaps little awareness that we were living through something remarkable. You may have heard of only one industrial revolution. Historically, it suggests there have been three or four smaller industrial revolutions. The first being in Britain from 1760 to 1840. The second being in Germany and America, and a bit in Britain from 1870 to 1914. The third being the digital revolution of the late 20th century. And the fourth industrial revolution being the one we are currently at the precipice of with an increasing use of the internet, 3D printing, robotics, and artificial intelligence. Yet I would argue these are not part of our individual industrial revolutions, but a much larger and broader mechanical revolution, which, because we live through, we can't really see. But in the fullness of time we may see the last 300 years, and the next 100 years is a long mechanical revolution. Every piece of progress is focused on our world being ever more mechanised. I would suggest that the mechanical revolution is winding down. We'll either have to find more and more things to mechanise, or we'll stagnate, or we'll have to find the next revolution. Yet the problem is that there's only so much that can be mechanised. So the steam engine. It's not one of those inventions I call a meta-invention. An invention that leads to many other inventions like computing or agriculture. The steam engine is an archetypal invention. By putting a few different inventions and inversions together, and with a bit of knowledge of the natural world, something was able to be made that was radical and new. This is its story. In around 60 CE, there was a mathematician called Heron, who lived in Alexandria in Egypt. Heron sometimes called Hero, was an inventor who invented a device that used steam to make a sphere rotate. Nothing ever came from this invention, and we've seen this type of thing before, how a novelty product actually turns out to be useful. That you can mechanise something that looks like a novelty may have profound implications, but the fact it's mechanised is what interests you at first. It may be able to do something that previously you couldn't, Resulting in you no longer having to do that thing and spending more time doing something else. Resulting in you no longer having to spend time doing it and making everything more efficient and less reliant on human muscle. The closest modern example is robotics. It's a novelty news item to see a robot do something. And in the early 2000s, there was not a day that seemed to go by without stories of a Japanese robot of some kind trying to walk and falling on its ass. But 20 years later, and the technology might be good enough so it's no longer a novelty, but something you see every day. And because it's mechanised, and because it's mechanised, it causes a large change in how we live our life. Anyway, Florence, 1641. It had been ruled by the Medici family for two centuries already, and was the centre of the Renaissance and scientific revolution, something we'll get onto more in future episodes. Evangelista Torricelli was living in Rome and adored Galileo and so moved to Florence to spend the last few months of Galileo's life with him. He succeeded Galileo as professor of mathematics at the Florentine Academy. In 1644, Torricelli built a series of apparatus to test the limits of water pumps. In 1644, through a series of experiments he built a fundamental barometer to test air pressure. In Magdeburg in Lower Saxony, Germany, in 1650 or so was Otto Gereich, a military engineer who was helping to rebuild the city after the devastation of the Thirty Years' War. He was unaware of Torricelli's work but started to demonstrate the power of a vacuum and the weight of air. He built a device that looked like a gun, but worked like a vacuum pump. In 1652, Gerag built some of the most famous and important experimental apparatuses in history. The Magdeburg hemispheres looked strange, and were built to demonstrate how powerful air pressure was. This tiny contraption he built could not be pulled apart by horses, and it only used air pressure. He showed this off numerous times, even to the German elector, Friedrich Wilhelm, amazing and impressing him. England, in the midst of the 1600s, had escaped the brutality of the Thirty Years' War. But there was a civil war going on, or as I think we better start calling it, a revolution. During this time, both Robert Hooke and Robert Boyle were learning of Gerag's experiments. Both were extremely learned men, with many discoveries amongst their achievements, such as the law of elasticity, the invention of the microscope, and much more. Their start began in 1659 when Robert Boyle hired Hooke to improve on the vacuum pump. The improvement Boyle wanted was to allow him to investigate the vacuums. This investigation would lead in 1660 to the publication of new experiments, Physico-Mechanical Touching the Spring of Air and its Effects. After hiring Hooke, Boyle hired Dennis Pappin to continue the research in 1690, Papin published The Axe of Editorium, a design of a true atmospheric engine. It used a vacuum made by steam condensation to let atmospheric pressure drive a piston. Papin's insight when making this device was seeing that the weight of atmosphere on top of an open cylinder could drive something mechanical within the cylinder. At Gresham College in 1699 in London, A prototype steam engine was shown off by Thomas Savory for draining water from deep pits. As pit coal replaced charcoal as a preferable energy source, there needed to be better replacement than digging drainage tunnels. At the time, the most powerful pumps were water wheels. But of course, coal mines don't come neatly next to rivers. Savory was among one of many who realised that turning water into steam created pressure and then converting it back to water produced a vacuum. But it was he who made it commercially viable. Despite our thinking the industrial or mechanical revolution was made by entrepreneurial men, it was actually the government who funded Savery's work. Savery's steam engine wasn't perfect, as it could only pump water, lacked any safety valve, and needed to be no more than 25 feet from the bottom of the mine shaft to work. Despite this, Savory's machine was a huge success, and not just impressing the great and good of the time, but the actual people who had changed the world. One of these was Devonshire ironmonger and blacksmith Thomas Newtman, who was greatly impressed by the device. The West Midlands back in the 1700s was one of the mining capitals of Britain, with much minerals extracted from the coal mines around the area. The most valuable of these mines was the Congreed Coal Mine, one mile east of Dudley Castle. The mines, like all, were only possible to mine when dry. Yet we saw, with the savoury steam engine, how it needed to be no more than 25 feet from the bottom of the mine to work. The problem with the Congreve mine was that it had been mined for 200 years and was six times deeper than the possible working distance of the savoury engine. Therefore, a new machine entirely was needed to keep the mine viable. The steam engine developed was called, quote, one of the great synthetic inventions of all time, close quotes. Mixing the man made vacuum with the idea that a functional piston could be driven by atmospheric pressure, the 1712 steam engine built by Thomas Newcomen is said to be the first real steam engine. We don't know much about the process of how it was built, but for about ten years, Newcomen and a colleague, John Calley, work on how to develop Savory's vacuum, and Papin's piston, and turn it into one invention. The real genius behind Newcomb's engine was that he synthesised Savory's use of a vacuum to raise water, with Papin's use of a piston to expand steam. He then added one other element, the beam. It looked a little like a seesaw, with one side attached to a piston, and the other to a pump rod holding a bucket, which made the pump end much heavier. The innovation to add the beam solved the problem of needing to have the engine near the bottom of the mine. The only limitation now was the length of the cable holding the bucket, and that was something easily overcome. Every stroke of the Newcomen steam engine lifted 10 gallons out of the mine, and there were 12 strokes per minute. It must have been one of the sights of the age. Seeing water pumped out of the mines through mechanical inventions, not beasts of burden. The Newcombe steam engine was perfect for the time, reliable, sturdy and simple to use. It is one of the great inventions. Within three years there were over 100 newcomen style engines pumping in England. What the steam engine changed, for the first time ever perhaps, is that a new form of energy could now be harnessed in a regularised way. Not muscle, water or wind, there was another, coal. Coal is not an invention but it has a huge importance to our story, not just for this episode or series, but everything. Coal was everything, and the new common steam engine was the primary conduit of this new energy source. Charcoal and wood had been known about as energy sources for millennia, but they weren't very good. Firstly, they aren't very efficient energy sources. It takes around 14 years to grow a tree, for example. Something that didn't occur to much of Europe, as they chopped down their forests in the first wood crisis of the 12th century to provide for the Crusades. This then had the impact of massively increasing the space for farmland and led to a population boom. Forms of coal had been known through the centuries before the Nucumum, and often called sea coal, as coal near the sea was very easy to get at. But as the need for coal grew, the mines to get them got deeper and deeper and as medieval England started to move towards the early modern period, the limits of the water table meant it became very difficult to get coal from underground. Mines were being abandoned due to the water table, as they were unable to get water out of the mine. The impact of the Newcomen engine on the process of mining can be shown in one way in particular. Before the engine, the only way to get water out of the mines was via a horse. In 1752, a study was carried out to see just how effective the steam engine was. A horse driven pump could lift over 67,000 gallons of water every 24 hours at a cost of 24 shillings. The Newcomb engine allowed for 250,000 gallons at just a cost of 20 shillings. This, overall, lowered the effective price of coal. While this was a great achievement, the Newcomb engine didn't quite do enough to move the steam engine away from the coal pit which was still the only place the economics of the Necomum engine worked. Nobody could use this engine for much more than mining coal. It was able to pump water out of the mines 300 feet deep and was instantly recognised by the mine owners as a way for them to make more money, especially as the coal was abundant. In the coal mines, this was easy to do. Yet the cost of installing the engine and the price to use it meant that a lot more coal was needed to be mined to compensate for the fact. This created the subsequent problem of a more efficient transport method being needed to transport the coal, so the return on investment could be maintained. Nevertheless, the nuclear engine was a great success, and copied all over Europe, and studied in all the great universities, including the University of Glasgow, where one James Watt worked. Scotland, in James Watt's time, was a very poor place, poorer than England at any rate. It didn't speak English per se, with Scots being the most common language, as a very strong dialect of English. More Anglo-Saxon and Celtic than standard English. David Hume, one of the great philosophers of the day, and of any day, encouraged the Scots to learn English and integrate it into Great Britain. An idea that generally won out, and resulted in Scotland being one of the primary emigrants to the colonies. Massively overrepresented in the British Empire, Despite what the anglophobic Scottish National Party might tell you. And let's face it, who could blame the average Scot for leaving Glasgow and moving to Australia? Or moving out of the Highlands, where there was a massive overpopulation problem, to serve in the army or the navy and travel the world? Scotland was a long way from political power in England at the start of the Union, but it was more literate than England. Furthermore, The universities were not controlled by the church as they were in Oxford and Cambridge. This relative poverty put new possibilities after the union of England, Scotland and Wales explain why Scotland became such an important player in British history. The Scots were very well educated and education was one of the primary skills Scotland could export. Scotland trained many doctors who left for all over the empire with their most valuable asset being taken with them, their intellect. Scotland was almost like a modern day Cuba, with an educated population, but still poor. Furthermore, Scotland's artists were some of the most highly educated in Europe, and as England began to inch ahead of the continent, Scotland was in a prime position to help England pull ahead a little quicker. Sir James Watt, one of those names you've probably heard before. He was one of the more prominent names of science, engineering, the industrial revolution, Scotland, Britain and the world. Watt's family background was perfect for what he wanted to do. A grandfather who'd been a teacher of mathematics, navigation and astronomy, and a carpenter father. When 17 years old, James Watt's mother died, and Watt was sent to Glasgow to learn his trade, mathematical instrument making, he could find no tutor, so he went to London, arriving in 12 days. London at the time was the biggest city outside Asia, it was dirty and overcrowded. It was dirty and overcrowded, so not much has changed then. Watt arrived too old by far, with most apprentices arriving at 14, but those extra in Scotland gave Watt an advantage, as he had learned many skills. He was employed as an apprentice at the Guild of the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers in the City of London, where in only a year he packed seven years' worth of education into just one, working on all sorts of the most advanced technologies the 18th century had to offer. From London he went back to Glasgow, a small town of 15,000, where he set up shop as the mathematical instrument maker to the university, that's the University of Glasgow. In Glasgow, Watt was a stone throw away from Adam Smith, perhaps the most other important Scot of all time. Watt instantly started to draw admirers from the university, and could have been a great academic but he wanted to make a better living from his experiments. In 1759, Watt entered into partnership with John Craig to manufacture optical instruments and then in the Delk Field Pottery Company. Every summer, he spent it crisscrossing Britain, working as a surveyor for the canals starting to pop up. After one surveying trip, he returned in 1763 and was asked to repair a newcomer engine owned by the head of Glasgow's professor of natural philosophy. It wasn't fully broken, but stopped working after one or two strokes. So what set about repairing the engine? The first problem Watt identified was the cube-square law, one of those mathematical problems solved in the scientific revolution, but was soon to impact the mechanical one. The cube square law is the observation that the surface of any solid object increases in size far more slowly than its volume. What this meant for the steam engine was that it showed the obvious weakness of larger models of the Newcomen engine. The bigger something gets the less efficient it will be, if based from smaller models. The law also works in reverse and this is what gave Watt his insight. The Newcomen engine he had been given was a smaller model than the standard engine and yet it was using far more steam than it should have been. Yet Watt couldn't explain why this was. Two years of experiments ensued with Watt trying to work out how to measure the loss of heat in the Newcomen design. He eventually worked out that the engine depended on the steam filling the cylinder before a vacuum was produced. Every time fresh steam was added into the cylinder it didn't expand it, it just turned it back into water. This meant it was still highly inefficient as an engine. Watt kept thinking about an engine that was cheap as well as good and didn't waste fuel. By 1765 Watt had tried dozens of ways to find, to get the cylinders to heat and cool rapidly enough not to cause waste. The way he finally worked it out was his second chamber connected by a pipe through which steam could flow. When it arrived in the new chamber, it was already surrounded by cool water, and the steam would condense, and a vacuum would form, and atmospheric pressure would pull down the piston. A mix of theorising trial and error led Watt to his breakthrough. But now it was time for Watt to return to his university workshop to make this into a model. Within weeks, he had handcrafted all the components for an engine with two cylinders, One piped to a boiler and containing a piston with a valve on the bottom to vent excess water. The two cylinders were connected by a pipe with a syringe immersed in a cistern of cold water. For what, a perfectionist, to say that the machine was perfect even thirty years later was a huge thing. Yet he struggled to find the capital to build it following the collapse of the Ponzi scheme that was the South Seas Company. Eventually he found John Roebuck. A serial entrepreneur, after long correspondence, agreed to fund Watt's machine. Three years later, and Watt was still having issues in trying to build it. Any defect in any piece of material was liable to stop the machine working. Newcomen's design only had to be better than a horse. Watt's had to be better than Newcomen, And a lot better at that. In 1769, Watt travelled to London to get a patent. Number 913. This is where his first meeting, after collecting the document dropped the patent, was with a Birmingham manufacturer called Matthew Bolton. Bolton was eight years older than Watt, and born into a family of pinkerers, resulting in Bolton joining the family business, making toys. But most of the work was contracted out to others. Bolton wanted to unify all the processes of toy making, and began construction in 1762 of the world's largest factory, two miles outside Birmingham. The factory had no child labourers and even offered social insurance for its workers. By the time Bolton was 30, he was a highly successful businessman. Josiah Wedgwood called Bolton the most complete manufacturer of metal in England. The mixing of the English industrialist and Scottish engineer is in itself a microcosm of the reason Britain began pulling ahead of the rest of the world. With Watt's business partner John Roebuck, in need of urgent capital, he contacted Bolton to offer him exclusive rights to Watt's machine. With Watt's business partner, John Roebuck, in need of urgent capital, he contacted Bolton to offer him exclusive rights to the Watt machine. Bolton declined initially. However, when Watt visited Bolton, he was more interested. Bolton was more ambitious than Watt. Watt might have been happier just in improving on the Newcomen engine, but Bolton wanted to change the world writing in a letter of his desire to, quote, make for all the world, close quotes. Watt's final breakthrough is one of the best recorded eureka moments in history. Watt recorded it thusly, quote, It was in the green of Glasgow. I had gone to take a walk on a fine Sabbath afternoon. I had entered the green by the gate at the foot of Charlotte Street, had passed the old washing house. I was thinking upon the engine at the time, and had gone as far as the herd's house. When the idea came into my mind that steam was an elastic body, it would rush into a vacuum, and if a communication was made between the cylinder and an exhausted vessel, it would rush into it, and might be there condensed, without cooling the cylinder. I then saw that I must get quit of the condensed steam engine, and injected water, if I used a jet as a newcomer's engine. Two ways of doing this occurred to me. First, the water might be run off a descending pipe if an outlet could be got at the depth of thirty-five or thirty six feet, and any air might need to be extracted by a small pump. The second was to make the pump large enough to extract both water and air. I had not got farther than the golf house when the whole thing was arranged in my mind. The need for a new engine was known in the industrial parts of Britain. The Coalbrookdale Foundry in Shropshire, England had 150 newcomen style engines, but they used so much fuel to fuel the pump that the only places they were economical was at the head of the coal mine. The warp machine would pump the same amount of water at half the fuel cost. With it being so much more efficient and powerful, it could also be moved away from coal mines and greatly expanded the use of this mechanical power source. This would result in huge gains not only in coal mines, but in tin mines and the Sheffield steel forges. Yet it still needed to be made commercially viable. In 1772, Roebuck's business interests collapsed and he sold his share in Watts Patent to Bolton for one-fifth of what Roebuck's investment had cost so far. Watts said he thought it would take until 1800 for the machine to break even on investment. And Watts' patent was about to expire in 1783, so Bolton sponsored an Act of Parliament for patent protection, to extend the patent for 25 years. Watt worked to build a model of his steam engine in Birmingham for over a year. Driven by a desire from Bolton to use this as an advertisement for the new engine on March the 8th, the Bloomfield engine was exhibited to general wonder. Yet the true wonder, would be the second Birmingham steam engine. Installed as an ironworks, it was much more impressive and led to interest from Cornish tin mines. These mines were 800 feet deep and was far more daunting than those Midland coal mines, meaning they needed constant draining. In the second half of the 18th century, half the advanced steam engines of the day were in one region of Cornwall. By taking one third of the difference in work, that's one third of the extra profits from what you could otherwise have mined, the Newcomen engine installed, replacing the Newcomen engine with the Watt one, sounded like a good business plan, yet it faced one hurdle. There needed to be some calculation of what, quote, the same work, close quotes, as before would have been. Watt came up with the method of measuring the pressure produced by a traditional atmospheric engine and then measuring it against his own engine. He then converted this measurement into what he called, Horsepower. The original Savory model was advertised as being 2 Horsepower. This new measurement of Horsepower was crude but useful, and it is still measured in more or less the same way as Watt first envisioned it. The engine Watt provided to the Cornish mines proved highly successful, and within five years they became a choice for most Cornish mines. Ever the Tinkerer, what continued after this installation in Cornish mines to try and improve his engine? He installed a sun and planet gear system. Think of two gears with one sun and the other planets attached but orbiting the fixed central gear. This simple addition of a rotary motor meant that he could add another cylinder, making the piston movement identical both up and when it came down. The piston was both pushed and pulled, both up and down, further improving the machine's efficiency. With a 75% reduction in energy use, it could still be pumped half as much. The double-acting engine dramatically increased the amount of coal that could be mined economically. These improvements then stimulated new demands, as there was now a smaller engine that could pump for such a low amount of fuel. The double acting engine meant that steam power could also be taken away from mines and mills at anywhere that needed engine power. The first of these new uses was the Albion mills in London. The largest flour mill in London built with Watts engine and it produced a huge amount of flour and stimulated the use of the steam engine. The flour mill produced so much more flour than traditional water mills that it was most likely burned down by a few unemployed millers. A few years later. This new steam engine resulted in the need for ever more coal as it was used in more and more industry. While the coal mines were able to mine more and more coal, leading to more problems of needing to get coal out of the mines ever quicker. Yet the Watt engine wasn't able to solve the problem of locomotion, something which many on both sides of the Atlantic were starting to wonder about. There were a few cable pulled around steam engine railways, or something similar, but the dream was for the steam engine to be part of the transport itself. The steam engine started to quickly affect other industries too. The first big change was the cotton industry. Only one spinning factory existed in England before 1750 and used water power for all of its needs. Industrialisation allowed for the production of a commodity that could be used by millions. The nature of the cotton plant means it's the world's most important non-food agricultural product. This meant that it was harvested using slaves from 3000 BC in Egypt to 1865 in America. Meanwhile, India was the cheapest place on earth to produce cotton, and demand from India grew as they had the best textile industry. Centuries of expertise in cotton meant it was the perfect place now to get it. Meanwhile, the English cotton and textile industry was expensive and not as good. After a few protectionist acts were put in place, and the industrialization of the textile industry, England soon produced most of the world's exported textile trade. Far from needing an empire for military purposes, the British wanted a consumer market to export to. Britain didn't need an empire to do this, but it was easy pickings and with much of the empire being composed of Irish and Scots being run by the public schoolboys of England, becoming the ruler of India or Africa must have just been too tempting. The steam engine and the expansion of the British Empire into India sees a direct correlation. So we'll leave the Watt engine there and move over to the United States. Only a few days after the Constitutional Congress started to meet in Philadelphia, they took a sojourn to the Delaware River where the demonstration of a new use of steam technology was to be found. A 45-foot long boat with six oars on each side. These oars, however, weren't to be using man-muscle, but steam power. The inventor of the steamboat was John Fitch, who had turned a nuclear-style engine on its side and tied that to an axis and the oars. Two weeks after the demonstration of the steamboat, The US Founding Fathers added a clause in Article 1 of the United States Constitution to, quote, provide limited patents to promote science and arts. The Americans weren't doing anything seriously different to the British in using patents, but it was a huge step forward in taking the best parts of Britain and making them American. Compare this to the French model, such as in the photography episode, where we saw the French buying the patent outright. And releasing it to the world. Wonderful and egalitarian, but perhaps not the best for perpetual development. Fitch, however, didn't really push his idea of the steamboat much further. With the huge rivers of the United States, quicker transportation over water would have been huge if you could get upstream travel. Furthermore, our old favourite the French Revolution was blocking immediate French experiments with the steam-powered ship. Meanwhile, Robert Fulton started to make genuine steps towards steam engine ships with the Claremont, a 20 horsepower James Watt engine to which he was granted a monopoly to travel the Hudson River on. It travelled at just 5 miles per hour, but it was quicker than any other steamboat to date. Oliver Evans, born in the colony of Delaware, was one of the first Americans to innovate with the steam engine in 1788. He invented an automated mill that turned wheat into flour in one continuous operation, showing a gift for large mechanical designs. Evans had wanted to use steam to propel vehicles. As we saw in the canal episode, moving over water rather than land is a lot easier. So he added a boiler to increase the pressure and applied for a patent for a high pressure vibrating steam engine. This engine could have been huge but the United States was a long way away from needing this type of steam engine for locomotion, unlike in Britain. So the steam engine was eventually retooled and used the engine in 1805 to make a steam dredge. The American riverboat is part of that American folk heritage that seems impermeable for somebody from the outside. Probably like an American trying to understand why I'm so into canals, railways and cricket though most English people seem to have a difficult time understanding that, too. The riverboat in the United States was home to the most famous of all of its presidents, Abraham Lincoln. While its role in literature in the United States was a key to American literature separating itself from the Old World. The Old World had nothing quite like the Mississippi River. England, like New England and the Eastern Seaboard, had lots of smaller rivers and a couple of big ones. But the Midwest, with its huge central artery, was entirely different. The most celebrated American writer of the riverboat era, Mark Twain, said in Life on the Mississippi, quote, When I was a boy, there was but one permanent ambition amongst my comrades in my village on the west bank of the Mississippi River. This was to be a steamboat man, close quotes. The Canal Age in Britain was a generation before steam transportation really came into its own and so the canals in Britain were too small to be adapted to large-scale steam use. America, with its huge rivers, has no such problem. For then, this steamboat was a vital cog in the jumping onto the mechanical revolution bandwagon. With the Louisiana Purchase, the United States literally bought a huge tract of land from France, who wanted the money to fight Britain with. Incidentally, the money from the United States used to buy the land to pay. From, was borrowed from a British bank. This money was then given to France, who were at the time fighting Britain in the War of the Third Coalition. Banks are a law unto themselves. The push into what we now call the American Midwest meant there was a huge swath of land with no economic development and huge potential resources like fur, lumber and minerals. This huge potential for agriculture and industry was hampered by the fact but the Mississippi and Great Lakes didn't really provide much help. You needed upstream as well as downstream travel for trade to flourish. Robert Fulton, who earlier made the Claremont boat, built the New Orleans steamboat in Pittsburgh, and ten weeks later it had powered its way to New Orleans. Fulton and Robert Livingston decided to try and get up to the Mississippi in 1814. It got 200 miles upstream to where it was lost in a fire. The boat, however, wasn't great for this job. The hull was deep considering the shallowness of some parts of the Mississippi. However, also in 1814, Henry Shreve became the first man to take a steamboat up the Upper Mississippi and also the first to captain a boat up the river from New Orleans and back to Brownsville. The Enterprise, as the boat was called, was a good ship. But Shreve would have to build his own boat for the task of travelling up and down the Mississippi. This flat-bottomed hull was 136 feet and 28 foot wide. He also moved the engine and boilers to the deck and not below. The Washington, as this new boat was called, saw incidents. But what it did do was go from New Orleans to Louisville in 24 days. What Shreve had done was to build the classic Mississippi paddle steamer surely one of the most important symbols of American folk culture. They were dangerous with boilers and steam engines on the wooden ships liable to explode and engulf everything and everybody on board within minutes. But it was worth it. By the 1850s, an up river trip took as few as four days. America had opened up the continent and America became more like the America we think of today. Not a country of 13 colonies but a vast continental landscape. In 1850, New Orleans overtook New York in volume of shipping, with half of all American exports going through New Orleans. While on rivers, places like St. Louis became hubs. The panel book age in the United States drew to a close because of the United States Civil War. The North to South layout of this new trade meant there was little trading during this period, with it being a North versus South war. Concurrently, the railroad expansions during the Civil War pushed the United States towards an east west axis rather than north south, diminishing the Mississippi trade routes. So, back to England and Cornwall with a mining engineer called Richard Trevithick. Trevithick was something of a local hero, from testifying against the Bolton and Watt engines as they required a high royalty ratio on their machines. Trevithick, a wonderful Southwestern English name, also helped improve a part of the steam engine by adding a water pump rather than a chain of buckets to get the water out of the mines. When the license of the Bolton and Watt engine ran out, Trevithick made a new engine to improve on the engine even further by increasing the pressure inside the cylinder by reducing waste. On Christmas Eve 1801, Trevithick appeared to the town of Camborne on a carriage with a high-boiler steam engine on board, and the carriage appearing to push itself down the road. Trevithick applied in 1802 for a patent for the locomotive engine he had developed. Meanwhile, Welsh ironmaster called Samuel Hoffrey wanted a high-pressure steam engine for one reason – to win a bet. Hoffrey bet with an old employer, Creshaw, but no steam engine would be able to replace a horse in moving iron. To win this bet, Homfrey would get Trevithick to build an engine capable of hauling 10 tons of iron ore from the mine to the sea nine and a half miles away. This penny Darren locomotive is a key study in how to innovate an existing invention into another one. In 1804, Trevithick managed to kind of get it working. His main problem was left with the engine than the rails, which cracked constantly when the locomotive engine was attempted. In eighteen o eight, Trevithick demonstrated a locomotive in London, but it was seen as a circus act and not industrial advancement. This Trevithick engine was seen by many as the birth of steam locomotion, and Trevithick as father of the railways. Trevithick is not too well known today for some unknown reason. My guess. Is perhaps his Cornish heritage. He didn't have the Scots, Northerners or London elite giving him the PR many of his contemporaries got. Yet the Trevithick engine was almost as big an upgrade on the Watt engine as that was over the Newcomen engine. In 1812 the first Trevithick engine was installed in Cornwall and with an idea to reopen tin mines in Peru, Trevithick set off for South America in the midst of their revolution under Simon Bolivar eventually joining the revolution, before coming back to England ten years later and dirt broke. His return ticket to England was paid for by Robert Stevenson, his only other competitor for the title of Father of the Railways. The railways weren't a new concept by the 19th century. Military engineers had developed vehicles to build fortifications, whose wheels were guided by parallel wooden rails by the 1430s while in the 16th century this idea was adopted by miners. As England chopped down more and more of its forests, this meant a new source of fuel would have to be found that wasn't wood. During Elizabeth I's reign, the solution was found in coal. The transportation required of getting said coal to London was done by a ship, sailing it up the Thames from the Tyne in Newcastle. However, there wasn't really a national coal iron market Due to its difficulty in transportation. It was very uneconomic. However mine railways were very economic and they were built on a huge scale in England to get coal from the pitheads to the most navigable convenient waterway. This resulted in coal mines moving to near navigable waterways like rivers and later canals. Slowly railways started to be added to coal mines with wagons to transport the coal. As canals started to link coal mines to the sea, steam engines were used at the end of the 18th century for short distance travel using a cable to pull a wagon over about a mile to these new canals. However, if you could miniaturise the engine and mount it on the transportation itself and increase the efficiency of the engine, you could get it to move independently. I like to call this miniaturisation, the third type of invention, the least radical one but one that can have some of the biggest impacts on the ordinary person. If we were to label computing or agriculture as kind of meta inventions, those that are kind of inventions, but also kind of like discoveries, we can call these type zero. We can then label inventions that build something from the use of natural phenomena as type one inventions. This can be something like the radio exploiting radio waves or atomic power using the energy from atoms. Type 1 inventions then lead to Type 2 inventions, the combinations of various Type 1 inventions to build something useful. The fridge uses a few different inventions like electric power, a Type 1, a thermally insulated compartment, Type 2 invention, and a heat pump that pumps out heat, another Type 2 invention, to make a Type 2 invention. Type 3 inventions are miniaturizations or efficiency gains, or price reductions in something that leads to significant changes in how it can be used. Cameras of the 1850s are still the same basic invention. We did an episode on it, but from the daguerreotypes to the Kodak was a massive type change. A type 2 change with the addition of photographic film, as was the move to digital cameras. But the cheapness of good modern cameras that they can be added to cheap smartphones and their smallness is a type 3 change. This tends to lead to massive consumer benefits. Anyway, after that long discussion, where are we? Well, even James Watt couldn't get the steam engine good enough to actually get locomotion via miniaturisation. So steam engines were massive and powering textile mills, pulleys and leather driving belts connected to looms. The coming of the canal meant that large-scale industry could be moved to towns, which quickly meant that new industrial towns grew rapidly. But the canals built to fossil these expansions had their limits. If you've ever seen a standard British canal, they really are tiny. They are quaint by both European and American standards. Though, I guess that's a lot of people's opinion of England anyway. The growth in high-value small items like tea could be taken over land. But with big bulky materials like coal, there was no such economics. The same holds true today. Oil tankers are basically just bigger canal ships. There would be no economics to getting a lorry and driving oil all the way from Saudi Arabia to China, for example. The narrowness of canals and their limited nature, with the British narrow boat having a beam of only seven feet, meant that it began to be obsolete as early as the beginning of the 19th century. This meant that cities with large rivers running them where goods could be transported straight onto ocean going vessels began to grow. Both the Mersey in Liverpool and the Clyde in Glasgow began to see trade growing quickly. Britain had known Mississippi, Rhine, Danube, Yellow River or Nile, one of these great rivers running through it. It had a few small rivers and a pretty big one in London and some larger but shorter rivers like the Mersey or Clyde. Water transport was cheap but slow and inefficient he needed to get things moving quicker, and get it to the ocean to do things more efficiently. So we get to the first mini-mania of the railways in 1841, which resulted in 2% of national income in some way relating to the railways. In 1847, this was 7%, with 4% of all the male workforce involved in the construction of the railways. Its impact on British life can be shown through the words of the great Victorian novelist Charles Dickens in his book Don Son. Quote The first shock of a great earthquake had, just at that period, rent the whole neighbourhood to its centre. Traces of its cause were visible on every side. Houses were knocked down. Streets broken through and stopped. Deep pits and trenches dug in the ground. Enormous heaps of earth and clay thrown up. Buildings that were undermined and shaking, propped by great beams of wood. Here, a chaos of carts, overthrown and jumbled together, lay topsy-turvy at the bottom of a steep, unnatural hill. There, confused treasures of iron soaked and rusted in something that had accidentally become a pond. Everywhere were bridges that led nowhere, thoroughfares that were wholly impassable, babel towers of chimneys wanting half their height, Temporary wooden houses and enclosures, in the most unlikely situations, carcasses of ragged tenements, and fragments of unfinished walls and arches, and piles of scaffolding, and wilderness of bricks, and giant forms of cranes, and tripods straddling above nothing. There were a hundred thousand shapes and substances of incompleteness, wildly mingled out of their places, upside down, burrowing the earth. Aspiring the air, mouldering in the water, and unintelligible as any dream. Hot springs of fiery eruptions, the usual attendants upon earthquakes, lent their contributions of confusion to the scene. Boiling water hissed and heaved within dilapidated walls. Whence also the glare and roar of flames came issuing forth, and mounds of ashes blocked up the rights of way, and wholly changed the law and custom of the neighbourhood. In short, the yet unfinished and unopened railroad was in progress and, from the very core of all this dire disorder, trailed smoothly away upon its mighty course of civilization, and improvement." Close now how do we link the steam engine and the railways? When we left the steam locomotive, it was barely usable, it was getting increasing use on water, but other than moving coal from pits to the canal or river. It hadn't yet seen much general use on land. Throughout the North East of England, where the mines were, they had a few hundred miles of railways, but it wasn't integrated. There was no sense of an integrated public utility that could transport people. This, however, would all change. The primary change being the development of a working steam locomotive. George Stevenson worked from the start of his life down the coal mines, then he began working on a steam driven pump, and after that another job down the mines. Inspired by the developments in the north of England, Stevenson taught himself to read and write, and hired somebody to teach him maths. In 1801 he began to work for Bolton and Watt, working on the steam engine that drove the wheels at a Scottish spinning factory an industry that had grown during the Napoleonic Wars, as more uniforms were needed. In 1803, Stevenson returned to the pit to teach himself mechanical engineering by spending one day a week off and dismantling and reassembling the colliery's steam engine. In 1811, Stevenson was hired to manage all the engines at the Killingworth pit at £100 a year, about £100,000 in today's money. In 1814, Stevenson built his first locomotive engine to transport coal at Killingworth, called the Blucher. The Blucher locomotive, named after the Prussian general who would save Wellington at Waterloo, took its maiden journey on the 25th of July, 1814. Two years after this journey, Stevenson and Newcastle ironmonger William Losh. Jointly patented a series of improvements to the locomotive process, including a method by which rails could be connected to each other. The development of these rails aren't really available to us, and we'll get onto that in a future episode, but they show what small innovations can do. The distance between the tracks was four feet eight inches and a half, and a completely arbitrary length. It was the length of the Klingworth Colliery wagonway. But, like many other firsts, the first became the standard. Today 60% of railways all over the world use standard gauge that was first used in Killingworth. Many however needed to be convinced of Stevenson's tracks, it wasn't particularly economical to just use it to get coal from the mine to the canal or port. When the nearby towns of Stockton and Darlington wanted to connect, a group of canal enthusiasts promoted canals as a means, but Edward Peace wanted a tram road. The tram road went out. No mention was made of a steam locomotive, but when they approached Stevenson to be the chief engineer for the project, he made the suggestion of a steam locomotive engine to connect the two towns. On the 27th of September, the two towns would experience the first passenger steam locomotive on railway. From Whitton Park to Darlington, 300 passengers got onto the first train, which reached Darlington to the cheers of tens of thousands, and 23 toasts were given to George Stevenson. The main effect of the railway was not necessary to lead people into believing there was a new age quite yet, rather that the horses pulling carriages down its tracks was now over. Over in Manchester, midway through the Stockington and Darlington railway construction, Manchester was producing more cotton than it could spin. Even the developed canal system couldn't quite get it out quick enough. The Bridgewater Canal had only 50 years seen its use maximised, while the need to connect Manchester to Liverpool was one of the great industrial needs of the time. Yet it wasn't still clear that a locomotive engine was the best option for this connection. With the use of rope cables being attractive, or a mechanical walker, something like an early version of the ATST from Star Wars. The idea of a steam locomotive engine won the contest and the Liverpool Mercury ran an invitation ad to submit plans for the winning design. The prize of £500 was the same as £500,000 today and it attracted cranksome and weirdos of the day. It was a modern day talent and reality TV show. The design for the steam engine was relatively strict instructions, requiring it to weigh less than 6 tonnes if on 6 wheels. Operate between 45 psi and 60 and pull 20 tons at 10 miles per hour for a 60 mile round trip. This left all but five applicants and of these only three were viable. This would result in George Stevenson's rocket. The engine had four main differences from previous engines. It could transmit power from pistons to wheels efficiently. It could preserve the traction between the wheels and track, minimize the loss of heat between the boiler and the cylinder, and it could maximise the amount of heat in the boiler itself. By September 1830, the rocket, as it had come to be known, was broken up and shipped into pieces, and moved by a horse-drawn wagon and canal to Liverpool for the trial. The two transportation systems carrying it would be carrying their own death. The first day of the trial were October 6, 1829, with an average speed of 10 miles per hour. The rocket quickly proved itself to be the best locomotive engine, but then the driver, who we think was George Stevenson himself, started to unleash the rocket. After the first lap of the test track, the locomotive went at 15 miles per hour, and then 20 miles per hour, and then he opened the steam regulator, and it went at 30 miles per hour, using only 200 pounds of fuel an hour. The other engines weren't a match for the rocket engine, Thousands rushed onto the finish line to cheer on Stevenson's rocket. One year later, the Liverpool and Manchester Railway opened for business, with eight Stevenson rockets. A few weeks later, and Stevenson produced his Planet and then Samson and Goliath engines. And what soon became clear was that the rapid and increasing use of the railways was because of a steam locomotive. From 1830 to 1870 is best called the railway age. From the development of railways to the Franco-Prussian War, the railways are the best way to see this period of history. We can view 1910 to 1950 through the eyes of two world wars, but we need to look at the period of 1830 to 1870 through the eyes of the railways. But why is the rocket the high watermark for steam engines? We could argue that some of the various steam-powered boats that cross the Atlantic could mark this point. Yet the steam locomotive is the real cog in the Industrial Revolution. Matching the increasing use of powerful steam engines in mines and better able to connect up the rest of the country, steam locomotion marks the real age of this mechanical revolution. Using sheer machinery to quicken up the world, the steam locomotive engine went at speeds of 30 miles per hour with ease. A horse may have been able to go at speeds like that for a short amount of time, but not with cargo, and not for long enough to enable a rapid change in the second half of this mechanical revolution that the steam locomotive would unleash. The ability to travel cheaply and quickly was not something that people would have even contemplated before. If you wanted to get to London, get a boat or walk, or if you can, a horse and carriage. But what the steam locomotive really did was to create a national economy. Rather than a lot of local semi-independent economies, you had a more integrated economy. And just ask any economist, and they'll tell you the world that this would create. Just look at globalisation. Goods and people can now move rapidly and over land. I'm not going to go into huge amounts of depth over the railways, but by the 1870s the railway had been exported all over the world. While the technology, primarily the use of steel in civil engineering, allowed for new connections to be made through natural barriers. While the worst house air brake company pioneered the use of braking using air rather than men trying to brake themselves. It meant with reliable and quicker braking, trains could go quicker and quicker. While travel over land was revolutionized by the steam engine in trains, this is to say nothing of its impact on water. We've seen how it was used in the American waterways, but over oceans was another task. This was vitally important for travel and the movement of goods. You can't go over the Atlantic. Flying hadn't been invented. You couldn't go under the Atlantic and tunnel it. The only way was to go through the Atlantic. In 1808, John Stevens launched the Phoenix on the Delaware River, where it would travel down to New Jersey. After a few mechanical breakdowns, it harboured after 13 days in Philadelphia, where it would never travel again. It was the first ever ocean voyage for a steamship, even if it was something of a failure. In 1814, a steamship called the Marjorie was built in Glasgow, and a year later, a French company bought it to serve the Seine River and renamed it the Elise. Do this, the ship made the first cross channel journey in heavy seas. The first regular steamboat service opened in 1819 in Scotland to link Glasgow with the Highlands. Yet there was a reason why steamboats didn't immediately take off. Voyages were just too long over the oceans to make it possible to use steam. Where distances were short, it was just about possible to use steam. The first longer distance route was a British postal ship, HMS Meteor, travelling to Corfu and back in just over a month, whereas the nearest competitor took three. Yet the amount of coal needed meant that coal needed to be on hand wherever you were going and on the way. By the 1830s the speed of steam ships was becoming apparent, and for one civil engineer there was an opportunity, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who was completing the Great Western Railway. And persuaded the company responsible for the railway to allow him to set up a separate company to build an ocean going steam powered ship. By working out how big to build a ship if it was trying to cross the Atlantic and how much additional coal he would need, Brunel named the first ship of the model the Great Western. It launched in July 1837 at Bristol, and in a race with another ship, the Royal William, the Great Western came just behind. Though a fire and Brunel falling off a lander meant it started later. The Great Western did the crossing quicker, however, in fifteen days, the other ship in just eighteen. Not content with the Great Western, Brunel designed a larger ship, the Great Britain. Made of iron and with a screw propeller, it was another huge step forward in allowing Britain to dominate ocean going travel between the Atlantic. Yet just as before with a steam engine, Travelling via canal on horse and cart would subsequently make them redundant. The steam engine was also about to bring about its own demise. The story of the steam engine on ocean-going boats is interesting in considering the perpetual developments that putting together different pieces of technology can bring together. Despite an idea having been around since the 1600s, it was Francis Smith in 1835, a farmer in Hendon near London, who was the first to build a boat with a screw revolver beneath the water. Six months later, and John Ericsson was building a six horsepower engine which he launched onto the Pannington Canal. The next year, Smith redesigned the propeller and the boat went around the Kent coast and back, proving its worth as a seaworthy ship. Smith, however, struggled to be taken seriously, with the Admiralty needing a demonstration. The Archimedes was built, a 237-ton ship with an 80-horsepower engine. Eventually, in 1841, the Admiralty commissioned the Rattler, which soon proved itself to be far better than the steam wheel. The development of the steam turbine, making electricity by steam power, by driving a turbine was far more efficient than using coal and steam power. The new turbine steam engines helped ships go faster and faster after the British introduced them in the late 19th century, while the introduction of oil in British Navy ships meant that even the great power of steam, coal, was now replaced too. The steam turbine is perhaps the last great development of steam, so much so that it is still used. Charles Parsons was the son of an earl in Ireland. The Earl was not an ordinary man, being an astronomer and engineer. Charles proved a brilliant engineer and in 1884 patented the steam turbine, which would be one of those small inventions that would prove huge to create in creating electricity. The turbine is a device that spins on its axis. He realised it was far more efficient than previous steam engines. He set up his own company and once tried to get the support of the Admiralty. They were not interested but he decided to prove the supremacy of his device in 1897. He made a little ship called the Turbina, powered by a steam engine turning a screw propeller. After a few teething problems, by 1897 the Grand Fleet were assembled to mark the Diamond Jubilee, with 150 ships drawn up, and Parsons took the Turbina between the ranks of the battleships at full steam, passing the greatest ships of the age, with foreign dignitaries there, including Prince Henry of Prussia. Turbina went at full steam ahead of the Royal Navy, and was pursued in vain by some ships. It was a sensation. He was sent a congratulatory message by the Prussian Prince. The Navy took the hint, and by 1905, all future warships would be steam turbine-powered. The period of 1865 to 1914 in the West is marked by these great ocean-going vessels. The number of emigres who subsequently left Europe for America is staggering. In 1907, alone, over one million people came to the US by ship, showing what a huge industry this now was, while shipping cargo was even further ahead of passenger travel in adapting to the new technology. Yet the First World War would be the event that would hasten the end of the steam engine. By the 1870s, lights and trains had been powered by electricity. And, with the opening of the London Underground in the 1860s, the artist's smoke engulfing the underground tunnel was not ideal. The opening of what is now the Circle Line in 1884 showed the need for electric powered trains. The city and South London Railway opened in 1890, the first troop underground system, and it used electric traction. While also around the same time in 1885, Carl Benz invented the first motor wagon using an internal combustion engine. Whilst the original use of the automobile would be to replace horse-drawn carriages for taxis, by 1914 the value of the internal combustion engine and the car was there for all to see. Apart from the steam turbine, there are almost no remnants of the steam age. Coal power plants are still used sometimes to make electricity, but not much in the west, And there aren't really any uses for the steam engine. Shipping is all done by oil or diesel. And most engines are now internal combustion engines, rather than external. Yet for 150 years, the steam engine dominated the world. The first real way to use mechanised power allowed humans to move away from horses. The increase in power led to the deeper coal mines, quicker transport, and from the Newcomen to the Watt engine, or the Stevenson rocket, the steam engine changed the world. Once a British invention, very quickly went to America, Europe, and the rest of the world. Steam trains were then built all over the world, often by the British who went to the informal empires like South America or Europe to build railways, taking their footballs with them. The steamboat powered America's rise west and enabled the Mississippi not to be a hindrance, but a help to American manifest destiny. The steam engine started the mechanical revolution, and even though it's been surpassed, The steam engine deserves its place on the list of greatest inventions of all time at number 59.